I had a vision once, a dream, where the earth was spilling all its rocks, trees, and dirt, like a rocket coming right out of the earth, and a tremendous power was pushing it up. And the ground wasn't sinking, it was just like throwing up an incredible excess of dirt, rocks, trees, grass, and it was going into the atmosphere. It's going into, it wasn't raining back down. It was just so powerfully coming out of the earth that just a tremendous force was pushing all these rocks and all this stuff out of the earth into the atmosphere, into orbit somewhere. It was just going. That was one dream, one vision I had. It was so real. Another vision I had was the blood of Jesus. I had prayed for three weeks. I was asking Jesus if following him was for real. If being a Christian was for real, I was a young Christian. I had been touched, but I was doubting a lot. I was wondering if, you know, reading this Bible, paying this money to the churches, not drinking, you know, was worth it. So I kept praying and asking, and one evening, Jesus showed up. He showed up <clears throat> with his robe quenched in blood, his hair quenched in blood, his face. He was holding the keys of the kingdom and they were dripping with blood. And he was handing them to me, he was stretching his hand up. And he was looking at me and his face said, I done all I can. It's up to you now. The ball's on your court. It's your turn. Another time, again, I was seeking the Lord. This time, I was praising him, worship him. Years later, I didn't have a, any reservations. I knew that God was God and he had relayed to me many messages that he was there. Every time I would feel inadequate and I would feel that he wasn't there, he would show up and show me he's there. So I didn't have to go there. But one time I was praying for three weeks and I was seeking him in praise and worship very hard. As a matter of fact, there was a church down the street, Mount Pomona. They were praying and seeking God 24 hours a day. Everybody had a slot. Everybody had a slot to come in and pray. Two, three hours they would pray, two, three hours. I was going two, three times a, a day 
And the Lord Jesus came and he touched me, he touched my my leg while I was sleeping. And he took me to heaven. And in heaven, the grass was beautifully green. There was what I sounds felt like honey air with music, with love in the air. Classical music with love and honey music in the air. A thousand times more vivid than the best springtime day I have ever experienced. There's so much love in heaven. I saw the grass, the buildings, the blue, blue skies, the clouds. I heard the Lord say, Lily of the Valley. That's right, Lily of the Valley. Amen. And then I was back in my body. Another time I was seeking the Lord very hard too. And I was <clears throat> cutting grass at my mother's house in Montebello. And she had a yard that was about 300 feet deep. And we had a electric lawnmower. A lot, a lot of wire. Extension cords. And I was deep in the grass, and I heard the Lord tell me, I'm here, I'm here. And I was hot, it was hot, I was sweaty, and I was full of grass. And I, 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 it's even hard for me to say it right now. I burst out, I said, what do you want, 21 gunshot salute? And then I would say, I'm sorry, I was just burdened. But I didn't know what to do. I mean, the Lord was there to help me cut grass. But I had been calling him and calling him, and I heard him, felt like he was standing there about, you know, six foot, nine foot voice, a man's voice. I heard the same voice once when I was selling real estate, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to drive semi, so I bought some cowboy clothes and, Went back to driving truck, and I was backing the trailer up into a Pasadena store, and I went inside. We started unloading the milk, and this one pallet for Ralph's Grocery, I believe. The clerk says, take it out, you know, in the showroom floor, because in the display, there's no milk there. So we pushed it all the way out there, and uh, and as we dropped it, and I was pulling the pellet jack back, I can see the uh, a lady with a pregnant, with a baby in the carriage, went up to the tall pellet, and she was reaching in and grabbing um, a gallon, plastic gallons of milk, and putting them in her cart. And I heard the Lord, as he's standing there again, that same voice said, this is the reason I had you to drive. And I looked back, I looked around, and I said, no one tells me what to do. And there I get again, now I know why my problems were so, you know. I was calling on the Lord's love and guidance, and yet when he would show up, I was I was fearful, so I had 
you know, I wouldn't go in. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. There was another time I had a vision of God. Uh, the Lord, Father God, showed me uh, about a, it looked like a three glass gallon water container, three to five gallons. And in it, it had about two and a half gallons of the blood of Jesus right in my TV room. Just a big old, I saw it very plainly, and it was the blood of Jesus, two and a half gallons. And then a quick picture of a pitcher, a water pitcher. It was pristine water, and we were saying to the water, it was brimming to the top of the pitcher, ice cold, beautiful, clean, spring purified water. And we were just, I can see it now, so clear, so beautiful. And I said to it, wonderful water, wonderful water, wonderful water. Kind of like we blessed it, and I, I didn't see myself drink some, but I do today. Then the next vision, three visions, the blood of Jesus, the water, and then the word of God, which is in the promise book, the promises from the Bible. And the book, the green book was open, the little promise book, and inside the book, by the window, uh, by the kitchen, by the outside in the uh, breakfast area, the next vision was kind of like each vision moved around the house. The second vision, we were standing by the kitchen, and the third vision was all happened in one, one series of movements: the blood of Jesus, the water and the promises of the Holy Spirit. And the little book was open and about $85 was on top of the book. And um, that's been my experience that, as far as I can figure it out, is that I claim the blood of Jesus. I imagine I put it all over my forehead, all over my heart, all over my body, my eyes, my ears, and I bless myself with the blood of Jesus. I claim the blood of Jesus, according to Revelations 11, 12. The blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb. The devil is defeated by the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. Satan is defeated by the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. And then I see the water, and I bless the water, and I drink it, and then I, I claim the promises of God by speaking them into the earth, speaking them into the sky, speaking them into the atmosphere. I claim the word of God. And the devil is defeated by the blood of the Lamb. The devil goes down in Jesus' name. Amen. To be continued. Thank you.
Welcome to today's podcast. We're going to be listening to MelBond.com. MelBond, B-O-N-D. Uh, he's a pastor, and he certainly does explain beautifully uh, the Word of God about imagination. I've been quoting a scripture lately, All things are possible with God. As a man thinketh, so he is. So he explains in the Greek teaching on this. I always believe the word believing has more connotation to it. I was wondering if it meant all the way live when you're at the uh, inception, wholeness. All those little hunches that I have, this man is confirming. So listen up. May the Lord bless our ears. Our ears are a gift. May the May the Lord open our eyes in Jesus' name. Our eyes are whole and complete in Jesus' name to hear what the Spirit's saying to the church this day. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Here we go. Mel Blanc out of YouTube. Welcome to Last Day's Signs and Wonders with Mel Bond. Thank you for tuning into our program. It's quite an honor and a privilege that you would take time out to listen. And we don't take your time lightly that we're, gonna, we're listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit so that uh, my tongue would be like the pen of a ready writer only to write down, speak those things that the Holy Spirit would have me to say for your benefit, that would be an enhancement to your life. Uh, to help you and encourage you, draw you closer to God, be blessed and experience the best out of life in every area of thinking. We thank all of the people that helps us by your prayers and your financial support. And then we'd like to also say to those people that if you're not uh, one of our partners, uh, we'd like for you to pray about partnering with us and praying for us and helping us financially so that we can continue to do what we're doing and we can do more, that God would be blessed. And uh, just ask the Holy Spirit what he'd have you to do, and that's all we're asking. So thank you from the depths of our heart. Now we want to take you right into this program, and I want to share with you how that imagination is a channel to the supernatural. Amen. Well, let's go on here. We're, that's in the book of Ephesians. While we're here, let's go ahead and look at chapter 3. I think it's verse 19. No, verse 20. Now unto him, unto God, that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. This word think in the Greek has exactly the same meaning as imagination. Now unto him, unto God, that's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we're able to ask or imagine according to the power that worketh in us. Again, the word power. God's greatest miracle working power. And as we study the word power, we find that Romans 1.16, the Bible says God's word is the power of God. It's the power of God. And so... As we imagine God's Word, it's according to us imagining God's Word. 
He's, he's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we're able to imagine or think in, a, in accordance to God's word. That releases. Again, it's the, it's the channel into the supernatural of God. Let's look here in the book of uh, Hebrews in chapter 11. I need to write a book on this. There's just so much, so much about uh, the laws and ordination of imagination. The devil hates it. Look at this. I want to show you how that faith, and the word faith, this word faith, in Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 1, gives us the interpretation or the meaning of faith, what faith is. And this word faith is rendered 244 times just in the New Testament, it has exactly the same meaning as imagination. I'll show you. Now, faith is, if you notice, faith is now. If you really have Bible faith, it's now. If you ever put it off into the future, you're out of faith. It'll never happen. If you say, one of these days, I'm going to be healed, you won't. Because it's, it's not because God is mean or ugly, but God is a righteous God. He does things that are right. This is how God does things. God calls those things that be not, even as though they are. God says, it's now. Now I have it. Why do you have it now? Because the highest authority in existence, which is the heart of God, the word of God, says we have it now. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Now, notice what it says. Faith is substance. It's substance of things not seen. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's substance and evidence of things not seen. So, if, if it's substance, and it's, it's substance of, of something that's not seen, what are you seeing? How are you seeing it then? Because substance is something that you have to see. Well, you're not seeing it with your natural eye. You're seeing it with your mind's eye. And your mind's eye is your imagination. Faith is evidence of things not seen. It's evidence. Evidence. So you've got rock-solid evidence in the unseen world. The unseen world is the imagination world. Every one of you right now are imagining something. You're imagining something. You use it all the time. Let's just imagine God's word is truth. I hope you're not imagining that Kentucky Fried Chicken is running out of chicken. Um, imagine something that's in agreement with God's word. Okay, now here's what we say. Look at this. Faith is evidence of things not seen. I wrote in my Bible what the Dex uh, Webster's Dictionary said for the definition of imagination is. It says to form a mental image of something not present. Then it said to conceive. Webster says to form a mental image of something that's not present. Present. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is evidence of things not seen. It's exactly the same, the same thing. So faith, real faith, is imagination. Now notice what Webster said, that it's something that's not present, and this is 
Webster says this is how you conceive. You'll never have until first you conceive. God's words are seeds. When a, a human being, the, the reason every one of you are here is because of the fact that there was a seed planted naturally. And that's the reason why your mother conceived the seed. She accepted it. She received it. She yielded to it. And she had you. And if you want to have what God's word has to say, then you've got to conceive it. You've got to accept God's word. And you'll have. It's the channel. Now, here's what Einstein said about imagination. He says, imagination is the preview of life's coming attraction. Wow. I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but God used him. It's the preview of life's coming attraction. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Now turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 17. Here the Bible says, verse 17, the primary train of thought for verse 17 is glory. That we have God's glory. The word glory is rendered something like 64 times in the New Testament. And the word glory, the fuller meaning is God's reputation. John chapter 17, verse 20 through 22, Jesus prayed. And he says, Father, I pray for those that shall believe. How many believes in Jesus? Well, Jesus prayed for you. I, I, I love for people to pray for me. But I'll tell you what, I'd rather for Jesus to pray for me than the whole human race. Wouldn't you? And guess what? Jesus always got his prayers answered. Always. And he always prayed the perfect will of God. And he prayed in John chapter 17. He said, I pray for those that believe that they would have the same glory that you gave me. So we've got it. We've got it. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. What? The natural says, what does the supernatural say? I knew, I've I told this story before, but it's been a long time, and it, it's a true story. And it, it, there's a lady that was, she couldn't read or write. And she worked for this other lady that was a multi-millionaire as her maid, cleaned her house, did that for many, many years. And when the, the rich lady died, she said she left this lady a document. And so this poor lady was, this is a true story. She was so honored and so privileged because she loved that lady, that rich lady so much that she took the document and she put it in a frame and put it on her wall. Now she doesn't have a job anymore and they found the lady dead in her house, died of starvation. The document on the wall was multi-millions of dollars given to her and she died of starvation. She was a multi-millionaire and died of starvation. And here's what God is saying. My people are perishing for a lack of knowledge. They're starving to death mentally, physically, spiritually because they don't know the truth. And the truth is God has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. You need to believe in the document and act on it. 
Amen. And so, here, 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 17, we have the glory of God. Now, that's a spiritual reality. And so, but we want to get it over into the natural. In essence, we've mentioned this ten, many times, that uh, if I'm hungry and God says he meets all of my needs according to his riches and glory, that's wonderful. That's a spiritual truth. But I want some food, some natural food to put in my mouth. I want it to be a reality in the natural world, and you do too. And so here's how we, here's how we pull it off the pages into the natural world. We have to have a channel. We have to channel this. There has to be a channel that'll, that'll take it from the spirit world into the natural. This is the highest law in existence. And it says we have God's glory. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. And then it tells us, it tells us the channel. The channel is imagination. Read it. Verse 18. We have the glory of God. Verse 18. While we look not at those things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. But while we look at the things which are not seen, for they are eternal. If you're looking at something that's not seen, what are you doing? You're using your mind's eye, which is your imagination. That's exactly the reason why the devil has used cults and a false religions to use imaginations so Christians say, no, I ain't going to have anything to do with that. But I'm telling you what, that we have been robbed because of the fact that we haven't believed one of the strongest doctrines in the Word of God, imagination. Amen. Now I want to show you how that Jesus used it. Jesus, I learned this from Jesus. He's a good teacher. Turn your Bible to the book of Mark in chapter 8. Jesus would pray for people, and he would imagine first. Now, I want to show you, I want, I want to talk about it briefly first, that we find that there was a man that was totally blind, never seen in his life, and Jesus took him outside of town. I don't know why he did that. There could be a lot of different reasons. Maybe he didn't want to get this, the man distracted, or I don't know. But he took him outside of town. And he told the man, he taught him about imagination. And he says, I want you to imagine you can see. That's what, and, and if you look in the original language of the Bible, that's what Jesus was saying. He says, I want you to imagine you can see. And that's what I do with people that are blind. I teach them, I want you to imagine you can see. If you're, you know, if you're crippled, I want you to imagine walking. I want you to imagine that. And so he says, now, I want you to imagine you can see. And so now the man had never seen before in his life. And so Jesus asked him, say, now what do you see? What, describe what you see with your imagination. And he says, well, I see men, but they look like trees. He described trees. If he's never seen a man, he don't know what, it, he doesn't, he has no idea what a man looks like. So to the best of his ability, he was describing a man, but he was describing a tree. And so then Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're goofing up here a little bit. Let me teach you what a man looks like. You know, he looks like he's got some brown skin. 
he looks like an Indian. <laughs> no, he didn't. He might have. Amen. We're glad to have a member of the Navajo tribe. First Nations people. Amen. And so Jesus described what a man looked like. He described it. And then he says, now I want you to imagine you see this man. And then the Bible says he used his imagination to describe a man clearly now. And then the Bible says, let's use different words. It says, and then he saw clearly. Wow. We're missing it. So simple. It's so simple. A little child can do it. Now let's read it in the book of Mark in chapter 8. Keep in mind, our Bibles today are, all of our Bibles today are mere versions and translations of the original manuscripts and many times that it takes more than one word to really fully express what's taken place. And so when they translated, they tried to find words that would be as close as that word as possible, but sometimes you lose the full meaning doing that. I've preached in 35 different countries, and uh, I have to have interpreters because I can't speak all of those languages. And many times I'll say one sentence because you can't say a lot. You just say one little sentence, and then you have them interpret. And I'm thinking, when I first started doing this, I thought, are, are you preaching the same thing that I am? Because they'll say something three times more. And I started talking to them, and I said, what did you say? And they said, we don't have words in our language for exactly that word, so I have to give more words so they understand what you're saying. And that's exactly what took place right here in this passage of Scripture that if you get you a good Strong's Concordance and, and look at all of these words and examine, and you'll see exactly what I've told you prior to us reading this, exactly what took place. Now let's read it. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 22, And he cometh, Jesus cometh to Bethesda, and, bring, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he, Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. The word ask in the Greek is, he said, I'm demanding you. I'm sure Jesus was very kind, but he was, in other words, this is what I want you to do. And then the word saw is the Greek word optomahi, which means imagination, to see with your mind's eye. So he's, he's telling him, look, don't let your mind wander around. So he's demanding him, I want you to see with your mind's eye, with your imagination. Verse 24, and he looked up, the man looked up, and he said, I see men as trees. The word see is exactly the same word as saw in the verse prior. It's the Greek word, optomahi. I see with my imagination. But he described them as trees walking. Verse 25. After that, Jesus, he, 
put his hands on him again and upon his eyes and made the word this phrase and made is one word in the Greek and the Greek it says he directed and I can't even read my own writing he gave him clear direction for him to look the word look is exactly the same Greek word optometry so he gave him directions on how to see with your mind's eye and he was restored and saw the word saw is a totally different word and in the Greek it says he absolutely clearly seen every man clearly amen the laws of imagination isn't that awesome amen start using your imagination and uh, just keep on using it and it's sort of like this just because there's a truth if it doesn't fully work for you don't cast it out it's because you haven't perfected the art of imagination you know it's it's like this how many of you rode a bicycle? You know how to ride a bicycle. Raise your hand. Do you remember when you first started riding a bicycle? I remember when I was a little boy and we didn't get a bicycle for a lot of years because we were poor. That the first bicycle I got, I worked for it. I did everything I could, you know, mow people's yards and pick up people's trash and everything else and save my money. And I bought a used bicycle. So I was, I was older before I got a bicycle. And when I first got on the bicycle, I didn't do too good. In fact, I can remember falling off my bicycle and getting all skinned up. But it didn't stop me. Didn't stop me. I kept doing it and kept doing it until I got pretty good. Now I can ride a bike pretty good. And you did the same thing. That you didn't do good at first. But it didn't stop you. And so, just because you're not, and, and some of you might just jump on this right away and just get proficient. But if you don't, don't get discouraged, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Amen. You just keep on, you, you keep on doing it. Why? Because it's truth. Amen. And it'll change your destiny. Amen. Just imagine. Imagine. Just imagine. I'm not on any ego trip whatsoever. Not in the least. If I, I want to do whatever God wants me to do. I really do. That I just, I'm not on an ego trip. If God asked me, if he wanted me to, just to live out in the woods and feed hogs the rest of my life. And just do, I'll do that. I, I, I don't have any problem with that. If God, if that's what God wants. But that's what he wants. That's that's what I now. If I had my preference, I'd rather. I've we've had the hogs before in the past. I really don't. Want, they're stinky. I prefer not to raise hogs. I'd rather choose something else. You know, like sheep. They're clean. Well, we're so excited to let you know we're coming back to West Palm Beach, Florida. God wants to do some great things there, and He's told me to come back immediately. And so I want to follow the voice of the Holy Ghost. So we're going to have a, a great miracle service uh, once again. I believe it's going to be greater this time in West Palm Beach, Florida. It's going to be April the 13th at 7 p.m. 
at the Holiday Inn right there, close to the airport in West Palm Beach, Florida. And so uh, we follow the voice of the Holy Ghost and we pattern after our leader, our uh, Lord Jesus Christ. And every service he had was a miracle service. And so we really try to do the best we can to pattern after the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the gifts of the Spirit are generally in operation in all of our services, not just through me, but I teach people to act like God is answering our imagination. Here's part one. I like part two better, but this is part one of imagination. So Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that's open and help us to play this over and over again until we easily use imagination. Thank you for tuning into our in program. Jesus it's name. quite Amen. an honor and a privilege that you would take time out to listen. And we don't take your time lightly that we're, gonna, we're listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit so that uh, my tongue would be like the pen of a ready writer only to write down, speak those things that the Holy Spirit would have me to say for your benefit, that it would be an enhancement to your life, uh, to help you, and encourage you, draw you closer to God, be blessed, and experience the best out of life in every area of thinking. We thank all of the people that helps us by your prayers and your financial support. And then we'd like to also say to those people that if you're not uh, one of our partners, uh, we'd like for you to pray about partnering with us and praying for us and helping us financially so that we can continue to do what we're doing and we can do more that God would be blessed. And uh, just ask the Holy Spirit what he'd have you to do and that's all we're asking. So thank you from the depths of our heart. Now we want to take you right into this program, and I want to share with you how that imagination is a channel to the supernatural. Amen. As I mentioned last night, that uh, I find at least 506 verses in the New Testament that teaches about imagination. Not all of those verses, most of them, in fact, very few of them, even use the word imagination. There's only maybe two or three times in the New Testament. However, that when you look at the original writings of the Bible, that it will either say imagination or have the same meaning as imagination. And we do this with every language on the face of the earth. You can take a man, and here's the man. He's the subject, a man. For instance, me. You know, I'm a man. And so we would be talking about me. And you could use the word husband, and you could use the word father, and you're still talking about me. And you could just refer to me as a husband or as a father, and you're still talking about me. However, you can't use the word husband or father for every man. You see what I'm saying? And so sometimes there are different words that has the same, it's referring to the same subject. And so we find the word imagination in the Bible using different words 
that uh, has the same meaning exactly. And so we're going to share some of the things. Uh, we'll start in the Old Testament just briefly. Just want to just uh, briefly share some things. Um, in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 23, in verse 7, the Bible says, As a person thinketh in their heart, so are they. And that word heart co-equally is rendered in reference to a person's mind. And so, if you're thinking in your mind, what are you doing? You're using your imagination. So it has the same meaning. That word thinketh has the same meaning. And so as you think in your mind, God says that's how you're going to be. If you want to change your situation, change your thinking. And like I told you earlier, the billboard I seen when I was a little bit discouraged, all of a sudden, I don't, I see this billboard, think big. God wants us to think big. He wants us to think in agreement with God's word. And so if you want to change your destiny, change your thinking. If you're changing your thinking, you're imagining things. Proverbs in chapter 29, verse 18, the Bible says, Where there's no vision, people perish, but happy are they that keep the law. Why didn't God say in his word, Where there's no vision, people perish, but happy are they that keep a vision? Why did he say law? If you'll examine that verse, you'll see what God is talking about. Again, we're talking about uh, the word vision. That word vision in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is kazal, to the best of my pronunciation. And it, here's what it says. It says, verbatimly, it says, to mentally form an image. To mentally see God's word. And, it, and so... It also says to have an oracle, that God has given us the privilege and the prerogative to have an oracle. Uh, an oracle is the highest ordination of God in existence. When he has, you know, that's an ordinate, that, that's an oracle. Um, it can't return void. It has to happen. And so we could say this verse that way, uh, another way, and, and be in perfect agreement with the word of God that uh, where there's no people that are having imaginations, they're not going to be happy. But happy are those people that have imaginations that is established on the Word of God. Where there's no vision, people perish, but happy are those that keep the law. And so you keep that imagination in front of you. And uh, I, I shared this briefly last night. I need to share it again. Shared it down at West Palm Beach, Florida. I do this all the time. When I pray for people, I imagine God's Word being a reality in their life. And uh, just this young lady here from Maryland was at her miracle service last night. I can't remember which eye it was. The right eye was detached, did you say? So, okay. Okay, the blob vision. And then, so, but what I've seen, I, I initiate. You can initiate a, your imagination. You can, we do it all the time. So let's do it in agreement with God's word. 
And so when I, I imagine people seeing, seeing her, her eye perfect, and now she says she sees perfectly with that eye. See, she can read fine print. So that's, that's what I do. Now, one of the things I want to say is imagination is something that the devil has fought for so many years. And the reason that he's fought it is because it's a powerful doctrine. If there's over 500 verses in the New Testament that clearly establishes that imagination, and Jesus said that all you need, he says you have to have at least three verses to have a doctrine. So that's a powerful doctrine. 500 verses? 500 verses? And there's, there, there's probably more than that, but there's at least 500 just off the top of my head, I see that. And so that's a powerful doctrine. And that's the reason the devil doesn't want us to know about it because we will change our destiny. We'll change our life and change circumstances with the power of imagination, imagining that God's word is truth. And so let's go on. So where there's no imagination, people perish. But happy are those that have imaginations that are in agreement with God's word. And uh, uh, I was going to tell you, uh, like I said, I, when I pray for people, I, I, I imagine seeing them in accordance to God's word. People that are in a, in a wheelchair, I imagine seeing them. There's a lady that was sitting over here last night, and she come in, and she didn't have any legs. Her legs was removed. Well, before I prayed for her, and while I'm praying for her, I imagine seeing those legs grow. Now, she has to be in agreement with it, but that's, what I, I, that's my part. And you know what? She validated that her legs started growing. She says she knew that she had, they, they, were, they had grown up three-quarters of an inch. Well, if she just keeps on imagining, it is, she'll get the whole thing. I, I imagine seeing the legs. I imagine seeing the feet growing down there. And when I see people in wheelchairs, I see them walking. People that are blind, I see that. I use my imagination. Well, I, I practice this in my own life. And more than one time in my life that I have had the death sentence by medical science. Doctors told me, you know, there's no hope. Well, recently I had another one that I was having some problems with my stomach. And so to make a long story short, Went to the doctor, thought, well, you know, we'll see what he says. And it's good to go to the doctor because sometimes it, you can get more accurate with your praying. And so anyway, went to the doctor, and the doctor was really pretty upset that he said, I've never seen anything like this before. And um, he says, your colon is totally twisted. Now, if your colon is totally twisted, and he worked on me for about 45 minutes longer than he normally would. And he says, I can't get past this twist with a, doing a colonoscopy. And so, uh, so the doctor's pretty upset. And so now I know, that, I know that the prognosis of a twisted colon is what they say is that uh, they have to cut out part of that colon that's twisted. And then they sew back the rest of the colon. And that's what, that's what they purpose to do. But if they can't do that, there's a, a good possibility they have to cut all the colon out. And then you wear this colostomy bag. That's what they call it, the colostomy bag the rest of your life. And I thought, you know, that just sounds like pretty poopy to me. I didn't want that. I says, no, 
I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. That uh, I'm just not going to do that. Not going to do that in Jesus' name. So what immediately what I started doing, immediately I started seeing my, my uh, colon straight. I did not look for a twist. I looked for it to be straight. And I kept doing that, kept doing that. And I initiated, I, I initiated feeling a relief. I, 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 you know, I, I initiated it. I initiated feeling a relief. I purpose, you could, I purposely did this, like I teach people all the time. Focus on relaxing. Relaxing is surrendering, accepting, yielding, and that's what I did. I just purposely just, I just made my body feel relief. And I've seen it. Well, the doctor says we need to run some more tests. So run some more tests. And they took me in there on, for radiology and Man, they took all kinds of pictures. I was in there for about 45 minutes doing all kinds of things, running things up inside of me and doing pictures and everything. And when it was all over, the doctor said this three times. He says, your colon is amazingly perfect. The power of imagination. Amen. And, and so... I'm no, you know, God doesn't love me any more than he loves anybody else. These principles belong to all of us. Can you see why the, the, the devil doesn't want you to use your imagination? Well, let's go on. Look in your Bibles. Turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 19. And uh, we'll see the word here, believe. And the, this word believe in the Greek, it's mentioned, and the Greek is the original language of the Bible in this particular verse, and you find that in the, in the Greek, this word belief has exactly the same meaning, exactly the same meaning, if you look at a dictionary for the word imagination. And this word belief is rendered in the New Testament 264 times. So every time you see this word in the Greek, belief or believe, it is co-equally rendered as imagination, 264 times. Another verse where this word is used is just, I ain't going to do all 264. You go ahead home and look them up. But you see in Mark 9, 23, Jesus said, all things are possible to those that believe. What Jesus was really saying in his day and in his time, all things are possible to those that imagine God's word being truth. Jesus said the same thing, Mark eleven twenty four. Whatsoever things you desire, believe that you receive and you'll have. Imagine that your colon is straight and you'll have a perfect colon. Imagine that God's word is truth, and you'll have it. Can you see that? Imagination is the channel to receiving. You've got to see it. If you can see it, you can have it. If it's in agreement with God's word, and God's word is full. Well, let's look at Ephesians in chapter three, or chapter one, verse nineteen. Here, the apostle Paul was led by the Holy Ghost and was praying for the people at the church at Ephesus, and he says, "And what is?" The exceeding greatness. 
Now, the Holy Spirit did not say what is the greatness or what is the exceeding, but he used these adjectives. Anytime there's adjectives, they're pronouncing it. You know, it's not just a, a normal thing. It's exceeding great. And so, what the exceeding greatness of his, his is God's power. That word power in the Greek, the Greek word is deutimus, which is the highest order, the most powerful power that God has in existence. And so what is the exceeding greatness of his great power to us word? Who believe? To us word, who believe. And so the word believe is the same to those who imagine. To those who imagine. Now, one of the things I want to share with you is I haven't learned to be exactly like Jesus. I'm working on it. I'm, 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 I'm praying and trying to be, I want to be just like Jesus because Jesus had life at its best in every area of thinking. And that's what I want. But I notice when in Jesus' life that, do you know Jesus didn't pray for everybody? I, I, can, I can give you just many, many verses in the Bible that clearly validates it. If you just read the, the one story, and I was talking to someone earlier this, this morning, at the pool of Bethesda, there were five porches of people. As I studied that, there was at least two to 6,000 people there. And all of them was there. That The reason they were at the pools of Bethesda, five porches of them, is because they all needed healings or miracles. And so when Jesus came, out of that five to 6,000 people, he only prayed for one person. Just one. And it was a man that was paralyzed for 38 years, never walked in 38 years. And Jesus prayed for him, and he was healed. Why didn't Jesus pray for the rest of the people? Because they weren't ready. And so everybody Jesus prayed for got healed, but he didn't pray for everybody. And we can just go on and on and on. There's so Read it again, and you'll see many times Jesus didn't pray for people. And the reason is, is because you pray for some people, and if they're not Maybe they've got sin in their life. Well, that voids it out. Or maybe they just don't really believe. You know, I have people come to our miracle services, and, and I, can, I can read their mind, what they're saying. Preacher, let me see what you can do. No, no, no. Does a person have expectancy to receive? And so here, again, we see it's according this greatest miracle-working power of God is unleashed. It's according to us that believe, that imagine. I just, I just imagine that when I'm prayed for, that I'm going to get up. I just imagine. I mean, this lady here, she didn't... Did you drive all the way from Maryland? 1,200 miles. Went back to the same restaurant I was at before. And the waitress came over and she said, what happened, what happened? And I told her about the healing my, my, in my eye. And she was all excited and there was another waitress that came over. And she says, well, what else happened? And I said, well, and then I thought about it and I thought, I don't have any pain in my back. I can bend, I, I'm sitting here without any pain. She goes, oh, you didn't know? And I'm like, I just realized it. And I got up and I'm stretching and everybody in the restaurant sitting around me was looking at me like, what is she talking about? Everybody yeah. heard me. and A lot of determination. When you have that determination, 
And I can, I, I remember the last time I was in India, we had a crowd of about 30, 35,000 people. And what we did, we just rented a big field and built a stand and preached off of that stand. And it started really raining all day long. And in my mind, I'm thinking, nobody's coming. It's an outdoor meeting. The field is full of mud and water. And there was people that walked 30 miles and sat in that mud waiting two hours for me to get there. And that's exactly the reason why. Remember that, Dan? That I, I, could, I can remember Dan. I, I told Dan, I says, Dan, I says, go out there and find one of the worst cases and bring them on the platform. And as soon as he brought this little girl on there, she's about 16 years old, she looked like spaghetti. She's so deformed, mentally handicapped. She's blind, she's deaf, she's deaf mute. And immediately the devil says, you bring her on the platform, immediately the devil says, you're gonna make a fool out of yourself tonight. And immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, man, Dan, if you had to bring that kind of a situation up, couldn't you just brought somebody up that had a headache? You know, but you know what? She was healed by the power of God. That first night, I think she was only maybe 10 or 15% better, something like that. It's a long story, but the next night, she walked by herself across the platform, seeing and hearing by the power of God. And, and so, but it was the ter determination, you know, and some people, it's just, you know, they don't, th there could be all sorts of things. But if we'll believe, that's the, that's the channel for the door, the, the, the channel for the, uh, the power of God to be released. Imagination is the channel. Well, let's go on here. We're, that's in the book of Ephesians. While we're here, let's go ahead and look at chapter 3. I think it's verse 19. No, verse 20. Now unto him, unto God, that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Well, we're so excited to let you know we're coming back to West Palm Beach, Florida. God wants to do some great things there, and he's told me to come back immediately, and so I want to follow the voice of the Holy Ghost. So we're going to have a, a great miracle service uh, once again. I believe it's going to be greater this time in West Palm Beach, Florida. It's going to be April the 13th at 7 p.m. at the Holiday Inn right there close to the airport in West Palm Beach, Florida. And so um, we follow the voice of the Holy Ghost and we pattern after our leader, our uh, Lord Jesus Christ. And every service he had was a miracle service. And so we really try to do the best we can to pattern after the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the gifts of the Spirit are generally in operation in all of our services, not just through me. But I teach people to act like Jesus, to know all the gifts of the Spirit. And so... Uh, there was many miracles. In fact, most of the miracles the last time that we were there were from our prayer team that prayed for people. And so, once again, we're going to do the same thing. And so, we want to encourage you to bring people that are blind, bring the deaf, bring the crippled, people that are paralyzed, people missing bodily parts, bring the dead. I promise you that uh, miracles are going to take place. God's going to be glorified. We're going to make a fool out of the devil. April the 13th, 7 p.m. at the Holiday Inn right there in 
close to the airport in West Palm Beach, Florida. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hi, I'm Teresa. I'm from Frederick, Maryland. And I drove 12 hours to get to Agape Church. And I went up for praying. Pastor Mel um, asked anybody that couldn't see. And I have the right, my right eye, the back part of my eye had fallen off. And so he prayed and I was buying books in the bookstore and I was getting my money out to pay. And my eyes sort of like focused in and this was the first thing I read, which is John 3.16. And I can even, from way over there, I could read the smallest John 3.16. And I read the whole thing and I was like, oh my goodness, I can see out of my right eye. and. God is just really good. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for tuning in to our program, that it's an honor and a privilege that you've given me that uh, I can be. Reading for us today is a portion from Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven is Real, or Heaven is So Real. So I'm reading for a couple of pages, see if we can catch your interest and see what you think. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today's reading. Thank you, Lord God, that we seek your heaven. You keep us alive and well in our areas of our life, Lord. We thank you for giving us Jesus. On his book, our terminal disease column says, as human beings, we have a terminal disease called mortality. The current death rate is 100%. Unless Christ returns soon, we're all going to die. We don't like to think about it, death yet. Worldwide, three people die every second. 180 every minute, and nearly 11,000 people die every hour. If the Bible is right about what happens to us after death, it means that more than 250,000 people every day go either to heaven or to hell. David said, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath, Psalms 39, 4, and 5. Picture a single breath escaping your mouth on a cold day and dissipating into the air. Such is the brevity of life here. The wise will consider what awaits us on the other side of this life that goes so quickly. God uses suffering and impending death to unfasten us from this earth and to set our minds on what lies beyond i lost people i've lost people close to me actually i haven't lost them because i know where they are rather i lost contact with them i spent a lot of time talking to people who've been diagnosed with terminal diseases these people and their loved ones have a sudden and insatiable interest in the afterlife most people live unprepared for death, but those who are wise will, will go to a reliable source to investigate what's on the other side. And if they discover that the choices they make during their brief stay in this world 
will matter in the world to come. They'll want to adjust those choices. Accordingly, ancient merchants often wrote the words memento, mori, to think of death, memento, in large letters on the first page of their accounting books. Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, commissioned a servant to stand in his presence each day and say, Philip, you will die in contrast. France, Louis the Fourteenth decree that the word death to be uttered in his presence. Most of us are most like Lewis than Philip, denying death and avoid, avoiding the thought of it except when it's forced upon us. We live under the, the fear of death. Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. In light of the coming resurrection of the dead, the Apostle Paul asked, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15:55. What delivers us from the fear of death? What takes away death? Sting? Only a relationship with that person who died on our behalf, the one who has gone ahead to make a place for us to live with him, if we don't know Jesus, we will fear death and its sting, and we should. Seeing the short, perhaps you come to this book burdened, discouraged, depressed, or even traumatized. Perhaps your dreams, your marriage, career, or ambitions have crumbled. Perhaps you become cynical or have lost hope. A biblical understanding of the truth about heaven can change all that. In 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean of Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore mainland, California. She already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompany her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in a boat alongside told her she was close and that she could finally could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until... What, she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Consider her words, I think I could have seen the shore. I would have made it. For believers, that shore is Jesus and being with him in the place that he promised to prepare for us. Where we will live with him forever, the shore we would look for is that of the new earth, if we can see, although the fog and picture our eternal home. In our minds, eyes will comfort and energize us if you worry and don't know how you can keep going. I pray this book will give you vision, encouragement, and hope, no matter how tough life gets. If you can see the shore and draw your strength from Christ, You'll make it. I pray this book will help you see the shore. Amen.
This is part one, a theology of heaven. Section one, realizing our destiny. Are you looking forward to heaven? There was a man who bought a sail for Australia or New Zealand. As a settler, is naturally anxious to know something about his future home. Its climates, employment, its inhabitants, its ways, its custom, all these are subject deep interest to him. You are leaving the land of na your nativity and you are going to spend the rest of your life in New Hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now surely if you hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it before we go to our eternal home. We should try to become acquainted with it. J.C. Ryle Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, often spoke of heaven. He said, It becomes to us spend this life as a journey toward heaven. Again, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey to heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is the proper and true happiness? In his early 20s, Edward composed a set of life resolutions. One read, Resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Some may think it odd, inappropriate, that Edward was committed to pursuing happiness for himself in heaven. But Pasquale was right when he said, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to end this end. And if we all seek happiness, why not do as Edwards did and seek it where it can actually be found in the person of Jesus and the place called heaven? Tragically, however, most people do not find their joy in Christ and heaven. In fact, many people find no joy at all when they think about heaven. A pastor once confessed to me, Whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. Why? I ask. I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium to float around in the clouds with nothing but to do but strum a heart. It's all so terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity in a place like that. Where did this Bible-believing, seminary-educated pastor get such a view of heaven? Certainly not from Scripture, where Paul said to depart and be with Christ was far better than staying on a sin-cursed earth, Philippians 1, 2, 3. My friend was more honest about it than most, yet I found that many Christians share the same misconceptions about heaven. After reading the novel Deadline, which portrays heaven as a real and exciting place, a woman wrote me, I've been a Christian since I was five. I'm married to a youth pastor. When I was seven, a teacher at my Christian school told me that when I got to heaven, I wouldn't know anyone or anything from earth. I was terrified of dying. I was never told any different by anyone. It's been really hard for me to advance in my Christian walk because of this fear of heaven and eternal life. 
Let those words sink in. This fear of heaven and eternal life, referring to her recently transformed perspective, she said, you don't know the weight that's been lifted off of me. Now I can't wait to get to heaven. Our unbiblical view of heaven. When an English vicar was asked by a colleague what he expected after death, he replied, well, if it comes to that, I suppose I shall enter eternal bliss, but I really wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing subjects. Over the past 15 years, I received thousands of letters and have had hundreds of conversations concerning heaven. I've spoken about heaven at churches and conferences. I've written about heaven, taught a seminary course titled A Theology of Heaven. There's a great deal I don't know. I do know. There's a great deal I don't know. But one thing I do know is what people think about heaven. And frankly, I'm alarmed. I agree with the statement by John Eldridge in The Journey of Desire. Nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our hearts sink forever and ever, that's it. That's the good news. And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. We lose heart. We turn once more to the present to find what life we have we can. Gary Larson captured a common misconception, misperception of heaven in one of his far-side cartoons. In it, a man with an angel wings and a halo sits on a cloud doing nothing with no one nearby. He has the expression of someone marooned on a desert island with absolutely nothing to do. A caption shows his inner thought. Wish I brought a magazine. In the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain portrays a similar view of heaven. The Christian spinster, Miss Watson, takes a dim view of Huck's fun-loving spirit. According to Huck, she went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and singing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. The pious Miss Watson had nothing to say about heaven that appealed to Huck, and nothing, if we're honest, that appeals to us. What would have attracted him was a place where he could do meaningful and pleasurable things with enjoyable people. What attracted him was a place where he could do meaningful and pleasurable things with enjoyable people. In fact, that's a far more accurate depiction of what heaven will actually be like. If Miss Watson had told Huck what the Bible says about living in a resurrected body and being with people we love on a resurrected earth with gardens and rivers and mountains and untold adventures, now that would have gotten his attention. 
When it came to heaven and hell, Mark Twain never quite got it. Under the weight of age, he said in his autobiography, The burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead, longing for release is in their place. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequences, where they where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness. What a contrast to the perspective that Charles Spurgeon, his contemporary, had on death. To come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. We do not desire to eat gravel. Why? Because God did not design us to eat gravel. Trying to develop an appetite for a disembodied existence in a non-physical heaven is like trying to develop an appetite for gravel. No matter how sincere we are and no matter how hard we try, it's not going to work, nor should it. What God made us to desire, and therefore what we do desire if we admit it, is exactly what he promises to those who follow Jesus Christ. A resurrected life and a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth, our desires co correspond precisely to God's plan. It's not what we want. It's not that we want something, so we engage in wishful thinking that what we want exists. It's the opposite. The reason we want it, it is precisely because God has planned it for it just to exist. As well, as we'll see, resurrected people living in a resurrected universe isn't our idea. It's God's. 19th century British theologian J.C. Ryle said, I pity the man who never thinks about heaven. We could also say, I pity the man who never thinks accurately about heaven. It's our inaccurate thinking, I believe, that causes us to choose to think so little about heaven. Theological, I neglected of heaven. Theological neglect of heaven. John Calvin, the great ex expository, never wrote a commentary on Revelation and never dealt with the eternal state of, at any length, though he encouraged his meditation on heaven and his institutes of the Christian religion. His theology heaven seems strikingly weak compared to his theology of God. Christ, salvation, scripture, and the church, this is understandable in light of the pressing theological issues of his day. But surprisingly, few theologians in the centuries since Calvin have attempted to fill in the gaps, a great deal being written about eschatology, the study of the end times, but comparatively little about heaven. Only a small number of the books on heaven I collected are still in print. While Christians still accept heaven as an article of faith, their vigor in defining the natural of eternal life has much diminished. 
In spite of the current revival of religious interest in America and Europe, the desire to discuss the details of heavenly existence remained a low priority. Colleen McDonald and Bernhard Lang. Theology, the, theologian Reinhold Rainbow, Reinhold Rainbow wrote an in-depth two-volume set entitled The Nature and Destiny of Man. Remarkably, he had nothing to say about heaven. Huh. William Shedd's three-volume dogmatic theology contains 87 pages on eternal punishment, but only two on heaven. In his 900-page theology, Great Doctrines of the Bible, Martin Lloyd-Jones devotes less than two pages to the eternal state and the earth. Lois Burkhoff's classic systematic theology devotes 38 pages to creation, 40 pages to baptism and communion, and 15 pages to what theologians call the intermediate state, where people abide between death and resurrection. Yet it contains only two pages on hell and one page on the eternal state. When all that's said about the eternal heaven is limited to pages 737 of a 737-page systematic theology, like Burkhoff's, it raises a question. Does scripture really have so little to say? Are there so few theological implications to this subject? The biblical answer, I believe, is an emphatic no. And the eclipse of heaven theology, Professor A.J. Conyers writes, even to one without religious commitment and theological conviction, it should be an unsettling thought that this world is attempting to chart its way through some of the most perilous waters in history, having now decided to ignore what was for nearly two millennia, its fixed point of reference is North Star, the certainty of the judgment, the longing for heaven, the dread of hell, these are not prominent considerations in our modern discourse about the important matters of life, but they once were. Conyers argues that until recently the doctrine of heaven was enormously important to the church. Believe in heaven was not just a nice auxiliary sentiment, it was a central life-sustaining conviction. Sadly, even for countless Christians, that is no longer true. Off our radar screens, an overwhelming majority of Americans continue to believe that there is life after death and that heaven and hell exist, according to a Barna Research Group poll. But what people actually believe about heaven and hell varies widely. A Barna sports person said they're cutting and pasting religious views from a variety of different sources. Television, movies, conversations with their friends. The result is a highly subject theology of the afterlife, disconnected from the biblical doctrines of heaven. I attended a fine Bible college and seminary, but I learned very little about heaven. I don't recall a single classroom discussion about the new earth. In my Hebrew 2 Revelation class, we never made it to Revelation 21-22. The Bible's most definite passage on the eternal heaven 
In my eschatology class, we study various views of the rapture and the millennium, but also no attention at all was given to the new earth. In fact, I learned more about the strength and weakness of belief in a mid-tribulation rapture than about heaven and new earth combined. Heaven suffers a subject precisely because it comes last, not only in theological works, but in seminary and Bible colleges classroom. Teachers often get behind in their eschatology classes and mesh in the different views of hell, Israel, and the church, the tribulation, the millennium. No time is left for discussion, the new heaven and the new earth. Imagine you're part of the NASA team preparing for a five-year mission to Mars. After a period of extensive training, the launch dates finally arrives. As the rockets lift off, one of your fellow astronauts says to you, What do you know about Mars? Imagine shrugging your shoulders and saying, Nothing, we never talked about it. I guess we'll find out when we get there. It's unthinkable, isn't it? It's inconceivable that your training would not have included extensive study of and preparation for your ultimate destination. Yet, in seminaries, Bible schools, and churches across the United States and around the world, there is very little teaching about ultimate destination, the new heaven and the new earth. Many Christians who have gone to church all their adult lives, especially those under 50, can recall having heard a single sermon on heaven. It's occasionally mentioned, but rarely emphasized. And almost never is, is it developed as a topic. We're told how to get to heaven, and that is a better destination than hell, but we're taught remarkably little about heaven itself. Pastors may not think it's important to address the subject of heaven because their seminary didn't have a required course on it, or even a selective similarity. When pastors don't preach on heaven, their congregations assume that the Bible doesn't say much about it. In 1937, Scottish theologian John Bailey wrote, I will not ask how often during the last 25 years you and I have listened to an old-style warning against the flames of hell. I will not even ask how many sermons have been preached in our hearing of a future day of reckoning when men shall reap according to as they have sown. It will be enough to ask how many preachers during these years have dwelt on the joys of heavenly rest with anything like the old ardent love and impatient longing. If this was the case, then how mature is now? Heaven has fallen off our radar screens. How can we set our hearts on heaven when we have an impoverished theology of heaven? How can we expect our children to be excited about heaven or to stay excited about it when they grow up? Why do we talk so little about heaven? And why is the little we have to say so vague and lifeless? Where do we get our misconceptions? I believe there's one central explanation for why so many of God's children have such a vague, negative, and uninspired view of heaven. The work of Satan. Jesus said of the devil, when he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and is the father of lies, John 8, 44. 
Some of Satan's favorite lies are about heaven. Revelation 13.6 tells us that satanic beasts open his mouth to blasphemy God and to slander his name and his dwelling place. And those who live in heaven are enemies slanders three things. God's person, God's people, and God's place, namely heaven. After being forcefully evicted from heaven, Isaiah 14, 12, 15, the devil became bitter not only toward God, but toward mankind and toward heaven itself. The place that was no longer his, it must be muddying for him that were now entitled to the home he was kicked out of. What better way for the devil and his demons to attack us than to whisper lies about the very place in which God tells us to set our hearts and minds. Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He need only convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unearthly existence. If we believe that life. We'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. We'll set our minds on this life and not the next. And we will be motivated to share our faith. Why should we share the good news that people can't spend eternity in a boring, ghostly place that even we're not looking forward to? In the country of the blind, H.G. Wells writes of a tribe in a remote valley deep in a towering mountain range. During a terrible epidemic, all of the villagers lost their sight. Eventually, entire generations grew up having no awareness of sight or the world they're unable to see because of their handicap. They do not know their true condition, nor can they understand what their world looks like. They cannot imagine what realms might lie beyond their valley. Spiritually speaking, we live in the country of the blind. The disease of sin has blinded us to God and heaven which are real yet unseen. Unfortunately, Jesus has come to our valley from heaven to tell us about his Father, the world beyond, and the world to come. If we listen to him, which we require a concerted effort not to listen to the lies of the devil, we will never be the same, nor we will ever want to be. Satan hates the new heaven and the new earth, as much as the post-dictator hates the new nation and new government that replaces his, Satan cannot stop Christ's redemptive work. But he can keep us from seeing the breath and death and redemption that extended to the earth and beyond. He cannot keep Christ from defeating him, but he can persuade us that Christ's victory is only partial that God will abandon his original plan for mankind and the earth. Because Satan hates us, he's determined to rob us of the joy we have if we believe what God tells us about the magnificent world to come. Resisting naturalist M. Spell. Naturalism Spell. C.S. Lewis depicts another source of our misconceptions about heaven, naturalism, the belief that the world can be understood in scientific terms without recourse to a spiritual or supernatural explanation.
in the silver chair, Puddleglum, Jill, and Ostas are captured in a sunless underground world by an evil witch who calls herself the queen of the underworld. The witch claims that her prisoners' memories of the overworld, Narnia, are about figments of their imagination. She laughs condescendingly at their child game of pretending that there's a world above and a great ruler of that world. When they speak of the sun that's visible in the world above, she asks them what a sun is. Groping for words, they compare it to a giant lamp. She replies, when you try to think out clearly what the sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream, and there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. When they speak of Ashton, the Lion King of Narnia, she says they have seen cats and have merely projected those images into the make-believe notion of a giant cat. They began to waver. The queen who hates Ashlands and wishes to conquer Narnia tries to deceive them into thinking that whatever they cannot perceive with their senses must be imaginary, which is the essence of naturalism. The longer they are unable to see the world they remember, the more they lose sight of it. She says to them hypno hypnotically, there never was any world but mine, and they repeat after her, abandoning reason, parroting her deceptions. Then she coos softly. There is no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, no Ashland. This illustrates Satan's powers to mold our weak minds as we were trapped in a dark, fallen world. We're prone to deny the great realities of God and heaven, which we can no longer see because of the curse. Finally, when it appears they so come to the queen's lies, Puddlegum breaks the spell and says to the enraged queen, Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all these things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Ashland himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is only is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one, and that's a funny thing when you've come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. The truth is exactly the opposite of naturalism, premise in fact. The dark world's lamps are copies of the sun, and its cats are copies of Ashland. Heaven isn't an ex extrapolation of earthly thinking. Earth is an extension of heaven made by the creator king the round puddle gum and the children believe in narnia and his son and his universe is real and the witch's world which is she tempted them to believe is the only real world is in fact a lesser realm corrupted and in bondage 
when the queen's lies are exposed she metaphorses into the serpent she really is whereupon Relian, the human king and Ashland's appointed ruler of Narnia slays her the despondent slaves who lived in darkness are delivered light floods in and their home below becomes a joyous place again because they realize there is indeed a bright world above and Ashland truly rules the universe they laugh and celebrate turning cartwheels and popping firecrackers sometimes we're like Lewis's characters we so come to naturalistic assumptions that we see is real that what we see is real and what we don't see isn't God can't be real we conclude because we can't see him and heaven can be real because we can't see it but we must recognize our blindness the blind must take off take by faith that there are stars in the sky if they depend on their ability to see they will conclude there are no stars we must work to resist the bewitching spell of naturalism. Setting here in a dark world, we must remind ourselves what Scripture tells us about heaven. We will one day be delivered from the blindness that separate us from the world, from the real world. We realize that the stupefying bewitchment we live under by God's grace, may we stomp out the bewitching fires of naturalism so that we may clearly see the liberating truth about Christ the King and heaven, his kingdom. Amen and amen. That was an excerpt from Randy Acorn's book, Heaven is So Real. I pray that you enjoyed that.